Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you uh, this day, and I always count it a privilege to open God's Word. I've been familiar with Ambassador for quite a number of years. Uh, I went to school from 7th through 12th grade with Rodden E. Caraman, um, so that's how I got to meet some, and also the McLaughlins um, from years ago. So for many decades now, I've had a knowledge of some folks here, it's always good to be back here, and it's a privilege to open God's Word. If I do fall asleep up here, someone, uh, please nudge me. (laughs) I don't think that should be a problem, but um, my voice might be a little bit weak, but uh, today we have the rich treasure of God's Word, the freedom to still congregate together, to open it, and then we, let's together pray that God's Spirit takes the Word and molds and shapes our thinking our beliefs, so that God could be glorified in us and through us this day. Let's together pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, our hearts are stirred, even as we have sung of the riches that are ours in Christ. That there is no guilt in life, there is no fear in death. That our Faith does have a resting place that we trust the ever-living One because we know that His wounds have pled for us. And while yet we have life, I pray that You would help us here to have our eyes fixed on eternity that we would see the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is good news, that pierces the darkness of this world, that pierces the darkness of our soul and gives us hope and confidence. We know our life, the days on this earth that we have are fleeting. And if we spend them doing nothing but building things or doing things, that are bound to this time frame. Then like formations in the sand along the seashore, as time goes by and our life is gone, soon the memory of us will fade away and there will be nothing there left. Yet if we invest now in your mission to take the gospel to the world, that even though people might forget our names a generation or two after our days are done here, yet there can be an eternal, sweet-smelling savor that rises before you as we have preached the gospel. Souls have been saved and believers strengthened that there can be a growing throng that will one day gather at your feet. So I pray that as we look into the pages of Scripture today, that we would lay aside distractions. And God, that we might be molded by Your Spirit, that our heart's soil might be stirred by Him, that we would be receptive, and that we would be obedient to the calls and the demands your word would place on us. Thank you for the joy of our salvation and the joy of meeting together this day. In Christ's name, amen. 
Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. Should the followers of Jesus Christ be surprised at all when we are treated with scorn or derision because we pre- preach the gospel? Certainly, the society in which we live has had such an, uh, an astounding turn in the last 10, 20, 30, and especially 40 years. Things that were hardly mentioned a few decades ago, and if they were, even in the general society, there was an acknowledgement that some things weren't appropriate. But now, if as preachers of the gospel, followers of Christ, if we call sin, sin, perversion, like we would call out lying and gossip and slander and fornication, no matter what it might be, then we are looked on as backwards and being hateful people and having our views on sin, which are shaped by the Scripture, be compared to someone who is a bigot that would revolt against someone because of the pigment of their skin. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us, or it dismays us as we look at society around us eroding. And I know that your city here is facing that in one small microcosm like is being faced all over this nation of ours and around the world. So when the demands of the gospel on the church of Jesus Christ are cutting against the grain of society, what are we to do? Certainly we should be kind and certainly we should be loving and we of all people, those who understand the riches of the grace which is in Christ Jesus as we've sang about today, we ought to be merciful to all. I was just at Home Depot a couple of days ago, and I was met, you know, by someone walking down uh, the aisle there that clearly um, was showing what was in his heart, um, cross-dressing. How are we to respond? How should we view that person? One, I mean, it's easy for us to go, you know, kind of shrink back, but. Paul later in Corinthians would say, such were some of you. So that we know that we have been saved from the evil and the wickedness that's bound up within us. So we, as we we might view anyone or interact with anyone that's bound by any form of sin, we should be loving and gracious to them. But nonetheless, the Gospel is good news, but we must turn from our sin no matter what that sin is to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And to preach that message is becoming less and less popular. It's becoming more and more offensive. And as kind as we might be in our tone, and we should be, yet we are going to be looked on and treated as though we are foolish. We're going to be looked on and people are going to say, these folks right here. These are the people that are the menace to our society. So what are we to do? 
Are we to take the Gospel and shrink back from it or try to tweak it so that it will become more acceptable and palatable to the culture in which we live? Because the message of the Gospel is an offensive message. And I grew up 21 and John R. Some of you know my parents a long time. You know, good kid in a good home and a good school and a good church. Someone had, had the audacity to tell me I'm a bad person. I deserve to go to hell. You know, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't done any of these bad things. It's offensive, and we'll run into people like that are that are very moral. And they'll say, you know, there are some people like this man who just beat a two-year-old child. Now, that's a person. He deserves punishment. Don't tell me. I pay my bills. I'm a responsible citizen. But to have the Word of God be opened and to say that we all, like sheep, every last one of us would go our own way. Our best deeds are like filthy, nasty cloths. That's an offensive message. Today, my encouragement, my challenge to all of us is that we would embrace the message of the cross of Jesus Christ and that we would preach it, that we would proclaim it to all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul has set up the contrast between the, the word of human wisdom and the cross. He's just started to address this cosmopolitan church, Corinth being a city much like New York would be today. It was a bustling, robust economy, and there was all kinds of trade that would take place there through in and out of their port. It was a city that knew a lot about a lot of different gods. There were all sorts of different shrines and temples. There, were, there was a strong contingency there of the, in the Gentile world where there were those that had a taste for logic, for those who had the gifts of oratory that could come and gather a, a crowd together and hold them, riveting their attention. They wanted wisdom. Paul's also writing to people in this church that had their roots, their ancestry as a son or a daughter of Abraham. There, were, there was a Jewish contention there. And as Paul came to this church, he's already addressed with them in verse 12 the fact that there were factions there in the church. Verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, meaning to gain a, you know, who baptized you, Paul, Apetus, uh, I'm sorry, Paul, Apollos, or Peter. Paul said, I wasn't sent to see how many I could baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's why Paul was sent to this city so that he could preach the gospel. Though they turned away from him, God said, no, you stay there and preach because there are many here that will believe and they won't believe if you don't stay and preach. But he says, I was called to preach not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Today we must embrace and preach the message of the cross. And three reasons why we must do so is because the cross, the message of the cross divides all humanity the message of the cross destroys human arrogance. And finally, because the message of the cross establishes God's wisdom and His power. Look down at verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross divides all humanity. As we look at the message of the Gospel, there were the prophecies that took place as early as Genesis 3.15 where God would send one who would crush the head of the serpent. There was good news that was foretold years prior to that, thousands of years earlier. The prophets looked ahead to a time where one would come that would be the deliverer. There's one message, the message of the cross, but it divides. Look down at the verse there are, and you'll see throughout this passage, wisdom and foolishness. These two words will be applied by Paul in either the words from the perspective of Scripture or from the perspective of the unbelieving world. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. One message. All humanity is divided into two groups. First, one who is perishing. They're going to look at this message and they will say, this is foolishness. Not just, oh, come on. You mean you believe that April Fool's joke? It's not that something innocent that you, uh, that you perhaps have happened to believe. They look at it as something that is a menace, that it is dangerous. It is a real problem that you would believe it. Those who are perishing look at the gospel message as madness. End of that verse, Paul says, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. One message, two people. To the unbelieving world, this message is foolishness. But Paul, as he's writing to this group at Corinth, and in the group of people, he knows there's people that want to uh, view themselves as having a corner on wisdom. So what's the natural contrast to foolishness? But wisdom. But Paul doesn't even give the people that he's writing to the satisfaction of playing to what their interests were. He said the message of the cross is to this group foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it's not just wisdom. It is the power of God. It's God's power to salvation. So there is one message. And are we going to be willing to cut the gospel message straight to handle the Word of God accurately so that it can do its task? If we so proclaim the gospel message to our neighbors and friends at work in such a way where they're not going to have any part of their being revolt against it and say, uh, I don't want to believe that message. No, I grew up, I, you know, I was almost an altar boy, which is our neighbor across the street. As I talk to him and try to give him the gospel, uh, he'll say, oh, I, I know that. I, I, was, I was almost going to be an altar boy. Can you imagine that? Me, an altar boy. You know, there's something in him that says, hey, I'm not that bad a guy. If we tamper with the gospel message so it's not offensive, then we effectively eviscerate the gospel. We destroy it from having it be the wisdom and power of God. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 116. So we must embrace the message of the cross because it will divide all humanity into two groups. Those who are saved and those who are perishing. But also, we must embrace and 
the message of the cross because it destroys all human arrogance. Look down with me at verse 19. Paul says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Just the idea of a deliverer dying in the cross, our Lord has fulfilled what Isaiah foretold back in chapter Isaiah chapter 29. He destroyed it. He didn't give them what they wanted. Look down at verse 20. And here Paul asks three rhetorical questions. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? And where is the debater of this age? Basically, what Paul is saying is, where is the best of the Gentile world that it can produce? Who's the best debater? Who is the best master of the law? Where are they? He invites them. And by doing this, uh, he, and he'll show us as we uh, march through this passage, that even the premier Jew and Gentiles of the age, the, how are they going to provide wisdom? And here, as he um, is going to be addressing wisdom, in verse 20, he says, where is the wise man? This wisdom is, has been defined as a public philosophy, a well-articulated worldview that made sense of life and ordered the choices, values, and priorities of those who adopted it. The wise man was someone who was able to make sense out of life and death. Do it in a public way, so all of the dots connect. Throughout this passage, Paul will return to this idea that men have their own explanations. Men have their own ideas. What do you tell parents when they have a five-year-old child that's been sick for years since birth? Just put on hospice care. I was going to die soon. As we have one of our teachers in junior high, they have a little five-year-old Brett. Could be any time, any minute. Where's the wisdom? And that's, that's Paul's question. Where's the people that have the answers to life and death and can take the perplexities, the heavy burdens and the loads and can give real hope, real help and not just my ideas. We want a God who we can control. A God who we can clip the wings where we want to to take a few of the claws out. A God that fits into our box. And that's what the Jews wanted. That's what the Gentiles wanted. But as we've been reminded... The cross of Christ destroys all human arrogance. The world's futile attempts to know God and frustrating that plan was always part of God's plan. Look down with me at the end of verse 20. After asking those questions about where is the wise, where is the scribe, and where is the debater of this age, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. So Paul is asked, where is the one who has wisdom? Where is the wise? Paul said, God in his wisdom, he who does have 
the answers to life and death, who has provided the means for us to have hope. So that one who is near and dear to us when we die and they've trusted Christ as their Savior and the work He's done on the cross to it, trusting in that to have atoned for their sins, that we know we have bedrock confidence that these dead in Christ will rise first. And not just something that we say when we're with people because it's the right answer. But that calmness of our spirit in the quiet of night when we wake. And it's us alone before God. It's the spirit that takes the message of the cross and makes empty and meaningless any of what this world has to offer for answers and gives real hope. What does our world want? They want money, right? I mean, we do too, so let's, be, let's, let's make sure that we don't lose sight of that. We, I think, all struggle with not having a bent toward if I just have this, not too much, but just a little bit more, then I'll be happy. So you know, I don't want to make sure that we're not just looking down at others and pretending like we don't have these, these struggles and these problems. Money. What do we want? We, want? we want people to think well of us. We want fame, right? Certainly we see that in, on the Internet, Facebook, which I have, I have a Facebook account. Um, so I'm not saying that it's, that's a problem to have it. But boy, people get on there and they want to see how many friends do they have? How many people are following them? Look at me. I'm important. We want people to think well of us. We want money, we want fame, we want popularity. What, what happens to people when they get that? Are they happy then? Does, I mean, does money ever bring happiness? It doesn't. And, you know, even we struggle with, you know, toying with that battle. But as we look at the world, those who don't have the hope that you and I have, they follow after it. And once they get it, they find that it's empty. Because... There is never a way where chasing after the things of this world, chasing after a God of our own making, which we all, everyone ever born, is a worshiper of something. We're bent from our birth to worship God. But even as, as your pastor mentioned that he was praying, there are many gods, but they are false gods. They are no gods. And there is no way that an idolatrous attempt to domesticate God could be rewarded by a genuinely deepening knowledge of the Almighty. It's impossible. We will never reason someone into genuine belief in the Gospel on our own apart from the Scripture being clearly presented, faithfully preached, and the Spirit working. The world's attempts to know God has been made futile by God. And finally, we see here in verse 21b, the second part of that verse, it was God's plan to save some through the so-called foolishness of the message preached. Look down at the end of verse 21. Paul says, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I think the Nazby has it right here in its translation. Uh, it's not the act of preaching, as though someone standing up with God's Word and the manner in which, most, for the most part, you're sitting there quietly and one person is standing up here 
and preaching. He's not talking about the act of preaching. Um, he is not talking about the ignorance of the preacher. Though, so, uh, there are plenty of people who preach um, that prove that they are ignorant of the truths of God's Word. But he's not talking about that. He's not talking about an ignorant manner, and he's not talking about an ignorant person. And he, what he is saying is God was pleased through the so-called foolishness of the message preached. So that this is God's message. What is it? It is the message of the cross that permeates this passage. And rather than appealing to people's desire for wisdom, desire for knowledge, desire for power, God says there is a message that to the world is going to appear as foolishness. And it is that message that appears to be foolish that will be the very key to salvation. God will save through the message. It, this message flies in the face of the elite and powerful people. If you watch much of the news, which I find it pretty much <clears throat> depressing when I watch the news, the local news, you know, happy stories rarely get on there, and there are some good things that God and His common grace that take place here in the world. That doesn't draw ratings. It's just the worst of the worst that draws ratings in the local news. And if you watch some of the talking heads on whatever channel that you might find them, they appear as though they have all knowledge. They have all wisdom. Even, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. Bill O'Reilly, who is a, he tries to be a critical thinker, but in his latest book on killing Jesus, he sets himself up as one who says, well, there's parts of the biblical record that aren't accurate. Oh, as though he is able to then stand in judgment over the Scripture. None of us can do that. You know, what if it was just really smart people, the people that you know, said, I can follow an argument, not just follow an argument, I can craft an airtight argument, listen to my logic, and listen to how well I reason, and I get the gospel. And it's only those people that are saved. What if it's just the powerful people, the who's who in our society? Where would that leave the poor, the miserable, the naked, the destitute? Where would that leave us? Thankfully, as our Lord says in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our Lord encouraged the disciples to see the honest sincerity of a young child who would trust an adult. And he says, Suffer the little children to come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Those who understand who a person is and give complete trust and confidence to that one. Thankfully, it's not just the wise. Thankfully, it's not just those who can debate. It is the sinners, the dregs of society that our Lord said, these are the ones that I came to save. Not just the ones who are wise in their own eyes or right in their own eyes. The gospel message divides all humanity. The gospel message, the message of the cross, destroys all human arrogance and pride. And finally, as we'll see in verses 22 through 25, 
the message of the cross establishes God's wisdom and power. In, in this section, Paul is going to break down the, the group that he's identified in verse 18, those who are perishing, a little bit in regard to what their tastes were, the Jews and the Gentiles, or the Jews and the Greeks. As we see in verse 22, all men have their own ideals. What are the Jews seeking for? Look down with me. For indeed, the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks search for wisdom. If you are a Jew, what do you want in a Savior? What do you want in the message? You want someone that, like Moses, lifted his staff there at the Red Sea, and the Israelites, millions of them, saw the Red Sea part. And then they walked through on dry land, and they turned around behind them just to see God let the Red Sea engulf and destroy their opponents. The Jews, they wanted a sign like they had been so accustomed to loving and appreciating in their history. They didn't want one whose arms would be just stretched out on the cross in crucifixion. They wanted a deliverer. Now, when Paul says the Jews want a sign, is it it's not because Jesus never gave signs. I mean, Jesus gave signs that we read about throughout the Gospels, Matthew 11, 38, and 39. There's just a, a host of times. Anytime our Lord did a miracle, whether it was turning water into a wine at the wedding of Cana, whether it was feeding the 5,000, making the lame walk, making the blind see, there were signs that unquestionably identified Jesus as the Messiah. What is easier to say to you, arise or your sins are forgiven? But so that you may believe, he says, arise. So signs were given, but they weren't at the whim and in the interest and for the benefit the Jews wanted, according to their plans. They were in God's time for his purposes. The Jews wanted a sign. What did the the Greeks or the Gentiles want? Look down at verse 22. The Greeks search for wisdom. They loved logic. They loved public oratory. They wanted dazzling intellects. That's what they wanted. But where all men have their own ideal, God's message stands in opposition to man's ideals. Not right next to man's ideas. Stands at a collision course. Verse 23. Instead of the sign or the wisdom that is sought, what does he say? But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, it's a stumbling block. They, the Jews, they wanted freedom from Rome. They wanted, to, they wanted to have their own king. They wanted to occupy their own land that had been promised to David and to Abraham. They wanted the deliverer. And you're saying that Jesus, the one that was just killed, is our deliverer? What good is that? I want none of that. To the Jews, the message of a crucified, a killed deliverer was a stumbling block to them. 
And to a Gentile, that was foolishness. That doesn't make any sense. Impress us with that? Okay, if Rome just killed him, how can he deliver anyone from anything? Continuing on, we see in verse 24 that God's call transforms man's perspective. Because how many of us would look at the message of the Gospel and on our own, we would figure it out that this is true and reliable. There's not one. There's not one of us that seek God. Every one of us would be there nailing Jesus to the cross had we been there because that is the Gospel message. So what is it that transforms us? Look at verse 24. But to those who are the called... Those whom God effectively calls to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your pedigree, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then Paul concludes his theology here in verse 25 when he says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the so-called weakness of God is stronger than men. So again, he is saying that it is the so-called, not the in actuality. Certainly God is not foolish. He is not saying that God's wisdom is a little bit better than man. He's not saying that God's might and his strength is a little bit stronger than man. He's drawing a contrast. They're polar opposites. God is all-powerful. And we're nothing. We are weak. We are insignificant. Look up into the skies at night. A couple of nights ago, we looked up there. It was just a beautiful, clear night. Even living here in the city, it was almost as though we were out in the country because you could just see the celestial bodies out there. And we're reminded to ask, what are men that God so great would take thought of us? The message of the cross it's God's plan. So as we look at this passage, and I'm reminded that you and I must embrace and preach the message of the cross, what does this mean for us? Because this is not just a message that we come together and we look at the Scripture and we go from here, that was, that was a nice message, that was a nice thought, and then it makes no difference. The message of the cross is, should overshadow every relationship that we have. We have good news. We're commanded to go and preach the gospel to all nations. Certainly it starts in our own backyard. So with friends, with perhaps a spouse, perhaps with children, perhaps with a parent, perhaps with a co-worker, an employer. Are we going to embrace God's message in Jesus Christ? That God created us. So if He creates us, He owns us. We're responsible to Him. And all of us, in rejection to God's plan, have turned away. In our heart of hearts, we hate God. And then having the guilt of Adam's sin to us, and then adding to ourselves sin upon sin and damnation, our only hope being found in Jesus' righteousness. Because God took all of the sins of the world and placed the guilt there on Christ so that all who believe the gospel message can then enjoy the rich truth 
that God's wrath was satisfied. And God looks at us as though we were as righteous as Christ. But we must believe who Jesus is and what He's done and believe and agree with God about what He says about us. Will we preach it? If we find ourselves today being critical of the Gospel of our great God, and perhaps there's one here today that has made a profession of faith that those around you would think that you genuinely have believed the Gospel message. But I don't know your heart. Believe the Gospel today and be saved. This means also that we will immerse ourselves in the Scriptures, not just in media and news and entertainment and the stuff of this life. Uh, I left my phone in the car because I didn't want it going off. I actually went off one time when I was praying at the pulpit. That was really bad. And then I got a message, so 45 seconds later, and I was still praying, it went off again. We have things always around us. We don't know anything of quiet and calm and meditation on the Scripture. We have to meditate on the message of the cross. Think about it. This means also that we will faithfully proclaim the message. And in conversation with unbelievers, there will be times when the, when the conversation becomes awkward because the gospel message, the message of the cross divides between the, the living and the dead. And if there's one who is still bound in their sins, like we were bound in, in our sins, and they come to grips with the gospel, well, that means that if that's true, what about my husband that just died and he believed just like I believed? Are we going to shrink back? Mind you, at that point, the one who is gone is, is gone. My concern is the one who is there. God's the judge and not me. But we, we cannot shrink back and say, pre preach or talk someone through the pearly gates. We're not the judge. Will we shrink back or will we embrace the message of the cross? To the world around us, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. Let's pray. God, we are thankful this day for the message of the cross. We're so grateful that you and your loving sovereignty saw fit that all of us here today would hear the gospel message. You have designed this time and this place for all of us to grow in grace. We pray, God, that as we have considered Paul's letter here that was your words, the church at Corinth today. That no matter what the world around us might say about an authoritative presentation of your truth, God, give us grace that we might never ever shrink back from the message of the cross. It is in the cross of Christ that we find hope. Yeah, we know that, that the shadow of the cross looms as madness in our world. But regardless of that, help us to preach it and teach it faithfully so that others might come by your Spirit's quickening to know, love, serve, and worship you. You are a great God, and you have an amazing gospel. We thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.